0: Joining me now is, uh, you know him, Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Hey, Jason. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today. Look, let's start. I'm con- getting confused again. I think last time you were on with me, I was confused. But the WHO is saying, don't mix the COVID vaccines. And I think people are going, what? Well, I already did. Uh, so <laughs> what, what is happening here? Explain this to me
1: uh what's happening is that somebody listened to a very small youtube video of her and then made a story out of it really um yeah because (sighs) when when they say the the world health organization advises against mixing that was one paragraph the very next paragraph actually says but we do have data on astrazeneca followed by pfizer and there's nothing wrong with that
0: (laughs) which is what we've been told here certainly by dr barney henry that's kind of the messaging we got
1: and, and the thing is, is that the Pfizer followed by Moderna or Moderna followed by Pfizer, because they basically are, for the most part, the, the same thing, mm-hmm. they, they have different uh, um, intellectual properties, uh, then there really isn't that much of a difference between those as well. So everything we're doing here in Canada is great. And as I've always said, you go in alphabetical order. You start with AstraZeneca, you can go to Moderna or Pfizer. If you start with Moderna, you can go to Pfizer. And yeah, okay, you can go back to Moderna because, you know, Pfizer was supposed to always be here, but, you know, now we have lots of Moderna. But still, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the whatever those stories are saying, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing here in Canada and especially in British Columbia.
0: Okay, that's phew. Because I'm a double A Z guy, double A Z, uh, and uh, you know, so I was like, oh, high five! I did it! I did something right for once. Uh, But yeah, and and you can still
1: go see spring. And you can still go see Springsteen, so there
0: you go. <laughs> that's right. You touched on it, though. Canada is doing great. I saw that we, as a country, passed 50% on second mm-hmm. doses. Is that right? BC's a little bit behind on that, on the second dose, but I think we're ahead on the first dose. So it's kind of all over the map across Canada.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think that's one of the big things is that we really wanted to focus on getting that first dose. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went from, you know, 60th in the world to, like, first in the world. And we all went, yay! And then Delta showed up, and we're like, Dah! so. So <laughs> Well, no. The fact is, is that if we didn't have Delta, we'd all be celebrating in the streets right now. I mean, we've probably still are, but. Yeah. Um. And and the thing is, is that that second dose is now really there to be able to make sure that we'll be able to deal with the Delta and any other subsequent variants that come after that. And we're increasing slowly uh, to a point where we're beginning to see the um, not just the shrinkage in cases, but Mm -hmm. also the fact that the variants themselves are not really going anywhere and that's really what we want to see because the alternate happens to be what's going on well what yeah. has been going on in the Yukon with and, the, the gamma
0: and the UK you're seeing you know 40 like we're at one per 100,000 now or something and UK bumped up to like I think I saw yesterday 43 or 47 per 100,000 like yeah. significant and that's because they why why I mean I've heard that in the northern parts of the UK and this is sort of in the States, then in the south southeast, mm-hmm. uh, this push not to get vaccinated at all and that's where we're seeing the jump in numbers. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, this is where we can make a sort of a of a, a break between cases themselves. In mm-hmm. other words, you were positive for the virus and severe cases, hospitalizations and, and so on. Um, if you have even had one vaccine, then you're in the former. In other words, you probably will. You may get the virus. You may end up having some symptoms, but that's about it. If you did not get vaccinated even once, well, then you fit into that second category. And that's really what we're seeing right now. Now, granted, a lot of governments are essentially saying, you know what? We're not getting fooled by this. If you didn't get vaccinated, it's your own fault. And Hmm. we're not going to shut down our country because of you. But by the same respect, when we've been so trained over the last 16 months to just hear case numbers going up and getting worried, um, you know, we, we have to sort of train ourselves now to not worry so much about cases themselves and really focus on hospitalization.
0: There's also the role uh, and responsibility of government, even if, even if people are not willing to get vaccinated. They still have to protect their residents, their citizens, their people, no matter what. They, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the, the challenge, I imagine, with government.
1: Did you by any chance see the press conference with Boris Johnson yesterday?
0: <laughs> okay, well, Boris Johnson's a whole other ballgame. Well, game. no,
1: but I mean, it's the same thing here in Alberta with uh, Jason Kenney. What they've now done is they've said, look, we've done everything that we can, and now it's up to you. It's your personal mm-hmm. responsibility. You have to be the person that decides. And I mean, here in Alberta, we're still seeing uh, you know, companies and, and stores and everything um, uh, limiting the number of people coming in. They still want to see masks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't demand masks because now no longer a bylaw, but you can still ask them to do so. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's happening is that the governments essentially are just washing their hands of it. And they're putting it in the hands of, of the public, hoping that the self-efficacy is now strong enough that everybody's going to do it, whether it is you know simply because you're afraid of losing business or there's peer pressure.
0: Alberta aside, and I think there's a lot of similarities between Alberta and the <laughs> and United States sometimes, um, and, mm-hmm. and the mentality, but as Canadians, uh, is it because we're just so Canadian and polite and say, so, oh, yes, yes, give me my vaccine? Or is it because <laughs> um, that there was this... Because the the whole vaccination program got slightly delayed and there was a bit of a panic, mm-hmm. at the, oh, we're not going to get our vaccines, oh my God. Oh my. And so we kind of got into panic mode that the yeah. UK and, and and United States didn't get into because they both had so much vaccine and they were full mm-hmm. on like months ahead of us. Uh, do you think, which is it? Is it because we're Canadian or is it because we were panic, in panic mode more than other places?
1: Honestly, I, I do not know. And I do not say this like it's not okay? science,
0: Jason. Is that why? Well, is no, this, but the you thing is, I can't okay. ask for your conjecture Listen, here. Come on.
1: We, we, we had the same thing in 2009, okay? And we actually had a vaccine come out late. And we had lineups like you were seeing a U2 concert, because mm-hmm. U2 was big back then, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We still only hit 50%. I have no idea how we managed to get to 75 for first dose. For me, that is just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. So either we scared the <clears throat> out yeah. of certain individuals so that they ran to go get a vaccine, or maybe it's gotten to a point where Canadians just simply realize that in order for us to get back to normal life, The vaccine really is the approach, but I don't have any data. I don't have anything to actually prove one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But you are correct in the sense that when it comes to Israel, the UK and the United States, they did not have a problem with supply. They now have a major problem with the anti-vaxxers who were ignored because they were just sailing and coasting along. Hmm.
0: Interesting. One of the things that I always find interesting is we don't know a lot about what's happening in China or Russia, for example, but China specifically, they announced that it's, uh, that COVAX has signed an agreement with them to Chinese pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. to give like half a billion of their COVID-19 vaccines or purchasing those for next yeah. year. I don't even know what their vaccines are or how are they, are they like, are, are, are they like, what are they like? Are they like, the, are they like AZ or are they like, you know, what are they and, and why should we, be, why should they be trusted?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> put me in a bit of a spot here. Okay. So what we have is the four that have been approved in Canada, uh, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson. They're all made to produce a spike protein that doesn't look like the spike protein in our cells or the original lineage. It looks like a spike protein that is kind of non-existent. And the reason they did that is because it'll Make sure that variants don't really do a good job of getting through. Hmm. Like It's preventing breakthroughs, as we like to call it, okay? Mm -hmm. The ones that are from China and even Sputnik, the one from Russia, were made with the original lineage. And the problem is they only protect against the original lineage, not the variants. Oh, wow. So it doesn't matter if you have a half a billion doses and you give people four, five, six, seven shots. Hmm. If you have a variant that simply breaks through the original lineage, it's not going to do you any good. That's the big problem that we're facing right now.
0: So what will the WHO say about this? I mean, we're trying to protect people around the world, half a billion doses of this that may not be effective as as, as the other vaccines. That's not a good thing.
1: No, and I think this is where we start looking at the, the COVAX program and the donating of uh, vaccines that maybe we don't feel as close to here in Canada, AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca and, yes. and And the thing is I know, and you're double A Z, right? So it's uh-huh. kinda like hey, don't worry, they're not slapping you in the face, I probably it's just a Gen X uh, but, thing.
0: It's just a Gen X there's punishment, continued punishment <laughs> to the Gen Xers. Uh, we've had years of it. It's okay.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, I no wonder why Nirvana was popular. But anyways, um, the thing is, is that as we start looking more at that um, pre-fusion spike protein, the one that actually resists against variants, I think we'll have a much better time of it. But you're right. You know, you have to realize something. There are 18 different types of vaccines out there that have been approved, and only probably about five of them have any actual uh, effectiveness against uh, the variants. So, you know, we're mm. in a different type of squeeze than we were six months ago.
0: Uh George Officer for Jill Bennett, I got Jason Tetro uh joining me here to talk about COVID. We're taking your calls six oh four two eight oh nine eight nine eight and we have Corey on the line. Go ahead, Corey. Yeah, hi. How are you guys doing? Good, how are you doing? What's your question?
2: Good. Quick question. Um I was watching last night on the news. The WHO had a conference and they uh one of the directors, uh, medical directors, was saying that uh, they do not recommend mixing the doses with each other, like AstraZeneca with mm-hmm. Pfizer, etc., because uh, they say it's a dangerous situation and there is no real data. Now. So why is Canada saying that they can go against the WHO on this? And <laughs> um, you know, basically, it's the science—like, what you know, who's right, who's wrong? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, there we go. You know what, here we are. Here we are. We we just went through that. I have it right here. The exact quote is: "We have data on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine followed by Pfizer." You can do that. It would be a chaotic situation in countries if citizens, people, not governments, people, start deciding when and where and who should be taking a second, third, or fourth dose. That is what the World Health Organization said. Mm -hmm. How do I know that? They're my friends. I'm actually talking to them on a different uh, stream as we speak. They did Hmm. not say don't mix and match. What they said was don't put it in your hands and wait for the data Ah, to come out.
0: So don't so decide AstraZen- yourself, basically. You don't exactly. go and say, oh, I took this one. I'm going to take this one now. So, And
1: mm-hmm. remember, as I just said before the break, there are 18 different vaccines out there, many of which are not going to work. You don't want to be mixing and matching because you're never quite sure what's going on. The only mixing and matching you should do is AstraZeneca, followed by Pfizer, or as we, as we talked about earlier, Moderna and Pfizer, because they basically are the same thing. It's just that they have different intellectual properties.
0: All right. Thanks, Corey, for your call. Jackie in Richmond, do you have a question for uh, Jason?
3: Oh, hello, Jason. Um, My question is uh, I am uh, recovered from COVID and Mm -hmm. it's my understanding that now I possess like a very robust, durable, complete immunity that cannot Mm -hmm. be improved on um, by vaccination and some recent studies have shown that people that have been vaccinated that has had COVID have um, increased side effects and um, currently, we're not recognized, you know, as far as being uh, going across the border, that kind of thing. And certain countries like Israel are recognizing mm-hmm. people previously recovered. So I, I just like to know your thoughts on this.
0: Thanks, Jackie.
1: Go yeah. Uh, well, first off, you have an immunity, absolutely, against the original lineage. So you're just kind of like what we talked about before the break. You've been vaccinated, if you will, with the original lineage. That's not going to protect you from the variants. So if a variant happens to come in inside of you, it's going to grow and say, hey, let's have a party. And that can actually enhance the infection. And that could lead to even more troubles. The reason you want to get a vaccine now is because it's going to help reset your immunity and it actually is going to boost it. We have the data on that. Uh, and it's going to give you the protection that you need against those variants. So that's one of the reasons why, at this point, people who have already had COVID-19 should also start thinking about seeking a vaccine. Uh, a- a vaccine so that I can help their immune systems and help them along. As for the information about um, more side effects, I haven't really seen anything. I think it's more due to age than it is actually um, prior COVID status, because I know people who are over the age of 65 whose T cells are not as great, and they have no problem with second doses, whereas someone like myself who's 50 who still has a nice robust T cell response, oh, yeah, I got walloped.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) then that's a good – Jack, does that answer your question?
3: Um, well, I, I guess I, I, w- I wouldn't understand how the getting vaccinated with the original vaccine uh, would help me now against the variants in that I also just had COVID recently. So I likely had a variant. So,
0: okay,
1: Yeah. And, and so what's happened is that you when you get the vaccine, you have a immunity against what is known as a pre fusion spike protein. And that does not exist in, in nature. There's no variant that's going to be able to beat that. And that's why you want to be able to get that particular vaccine, because it's going to give you that protection that is essentially universal. And that's one of the that's essentially why you want to do it. And even if you did get a variant, whether it be alpha, beta, gamma, whatever, if there are other variants show up, you're still going to end up being more vulnerable to them than if you get this particular vaccine.
0: All right. Thanks, Jackie, for your call. Uh, so, Jason, just it's interesting right now what's happening in Cuba. I thought, you know, that uh, with this revolt that's happening, who would have thought mm-hmm. that uh, uh, the vaccinations or lack of them <laughs> may lead to the fall mm-hmm. of Cuba? I mean, the, the, the repercussions, and we're talking about this later in the show about, you know, how things have changed and are evolving so quickly that are kind of unrelated to the vaccine and to the, and to the virus. It's very interesting to watch as the world changes.
1: Well, yeah, and this has actually happened with pretty much every pandemic that's ha- that's occurred. And um, we're using the vaccine as sort of the, the reason for it. In other times it was, uh, you know, the, the lack of uh, open mm-hmm. movement or freedom of right. movement, uh, shut down uh, ports, that type of thing, uh, public health laws. But what ends up happening is that there are already cauldrons that are bubbling in society. And what happens is the pandemic comes in and it removes all those lovely little buffers. Right. And then the cauldron just explodes. <laughs> we saw it happen in the States. We're seeing it happen in South Africa. We're seeing it happen in Cuba. Yeah. Where else is it going to happen? I have no
0: idea. All right, Jason, thanks for joining me again. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much, Jason Tetro. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week and uh, looking forward to uh, having you uh, listen and enjoy the show for the weekend. If you want to reach me, you can follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck, or you can email me, George, at cknw.com. A recent investigation has led to a first-of-its-kind bust in a 3D-printed ghost gun manufacturing operation. Police in Canadian cities are seeing an increase in, in untraceable firearms, and it has many concerns. Joining me now is Rod Giladica, uh CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Hello, uh, Rod, how are you doing today? Good, George, how are you? Good. So can you, first of all, explain to me what a ghost gun is and how they're made
4: well, there. I guess there's two concerns. There's 3D-printed guns and then there's ghost guns. Ghost okay. guns usually refer to um, a firearm that doesn't have any serial numbers on it, no no traceable markings on it. And then, of course, the 3D-printed gun concern is that you could take a, a 3D resin printer mm-hmm. and then print a gun, which, of course, would be untraceable as well.
0: Okay, but I suppose a 3D-printed gun would also not have a uh, uh, any kind of serial number on it as well that's right yeah mm-hmm. you can print them at home with an off-the-shelf 3d printer so this happened in Winnipeg but are these are there, these are concerns that across Canada how, how bad is this how bad and how do we know how bad it is well I think I think it's it's the concern over these things are completely
4: overblown so in the case of ghost guns um, you know guns come across the border every day sometimes mm-hmm. 40 50 guns at a time okay. there's no no trouble getting you know a real properly manufactured illegal guns from the united states or other countries as well mm-hmm. there's a that is a non-issue so to be concerned that ghost guns are an issue because they can't be traced you know i mean certainly in an investigation it's it tampers that a little bit but you know it's not going to change violence and when it comes to 3d printed guns they're so fragile that you can't shoot a, um, anything more than probably a 22 caliber bullet out of it and i mean it can blow up in your hands that's why even pellet guns don't
0: have plastic barrels so on the two fronts, one is really the question is how do these guns getting into this country uh, and then being and having their ID scraped off them? And then if you're saying those uh, 3D printing guns are no good, then what's the what's the concern by the police? Well, the real concern
4: here and, and the, the, the problem with this, all this talk about guns is it's it's a red herring. It's a distraction. Mm-hmm. The real problem that we're facing as Canadians is violence. We're mm-hmm. facing a gang violence problem. We're facing an, an opiate An opiate crisis, which fuels violence as well. You know, there's a lot of guns everywhere. In, In Canada, there's 20 million legally owned guns floating around. Right over the last, you know, 80 years. And you know, if there's no violence, there is no gun violence and no violence with knives and whatnot. So we need to focus on the root causes of violence if we want to live in a better society. Not chasing people around with 3D printers or worried that someone's going to build something with materials they find at Home Depot.
0: So how do we deal with the violence then? Obviously you are the, uh, you know, your organization is supportive of uh, you know, owning guns, your fire, firearm rights. Uh, how do we deal with this challenge that we have where people are, are you know, we're, we're seeing increase in crime with guns, certainly in, in this province we are.
4: Yes, we are. And what that's driven by is root causes. So if you're talking about urban violence, gang related violence you have to you have to interdict youth when they're heading towards a gang lifestyle you have to deal with uh with drug addiction and drug flow into the country if you're talking about um, rural violence you have a lot of poverty out in these rural areas you have also a lot of property crime these are all root causes if you if you deal with the root causes then you don't have any violence right Mm -hmm. people need a reason to attack each other and and certainly drugs and uh, and um, you know, socioeconomic disadvantages are the driver of these things. So if you really want to take it seriously, you really want to make Canada a better place, then it's, it, gets, it has to stop being political about chasing people like me around. Have never been a problem. And get down to root causes and make Canada better.
0: Is your organization being harassed by them, by the police? But it's for well, information?
4: We, we, we absolutely are being harassed. Right? There's a, a massive gun ban that affected almost a million firearms. Mm-hmm. Are, uh, this so is like now where have, cities get to choose uh, that that new policy or is that how- well and if, well no that's the gun ban that happened um, a year ago last May okay. 1st mm-hmm. you know which for somebody like me now I have five rifles I that I have to sit in the house with and I can't move them or shoot them or, or get compensated for them and that's supposed to you know stop gang violence in you know here in, in Chilliwack and that's supposed to stop gang violence in uh, downtown Toronto so of course it's absurd so, and then the other thing about um, having mayors do gun bans—you mm. know, enact gun bans in, in municipalities—so that what if you legally own a firearm and you're a licensed gun owner, you have to now what leave Vancouver and sell your sell your place and move somewhere?
0: I mean, it's, it's absurd. Well, you but would this, put it in. I assume that the, the concept is you put it in a, some sort of warehouse situation, right? And and you'd have to go visit your gun to to use it. Well, this is the the concept. But you're talking about
4: billions of dollars if you're gonna do that in, in a lot a lot of large municipalities across the country. It's it's not it's not really the problem. And ha. again, you know, here we are again talking about mm-hmm. central storage for people that have a firearms license. Right. So right? You
0: cha- so the the, the the that's a conflicting policy. I suppose you could argue that they, you have your right to have the gun because you follow the rules and regulations that exist for that. But now you're telling just just because you did that, you have to have. Sorry, that's that rule only applies if you put your gun somewhere else.
4: Well, well, of course, right. So you know, making someone take their gun to central storage is not doing anything about the opiate crisis or the gang crisis, right? And again, like, and this is why I say I'm not, I I, I don't say that it's a, it's a distraction for self-interest. Certainly I don't like to be targeted, you know, by the government every four years, you know, all gun owners, when there's an election, they, they, you know, they're, they tense up and they're like, okay, what's my life going to look like just because I own guns. I mean, this this is this but, is aimed at the wrong people, and it's not making Canada a safer place.
0: Well, yeah, but of course, you get this argument all the time, and I'll let you respond to it. Is well, in America, they let them have guns way easier, and therefore, they have more murders and killings with guns than they have here. And the whole argument: guns kill people, people kill guns, and all that whole people kill people. It's like, how do you when you look at the math proportionally? How can you not agree with that? That's the case. Well, because it isn't the case. There are a lot of
4: countries that have more guns per capita than Canada that have half of the uh, firearm-related homicide and suicide rate. Which ones? Uh, The Czech Republic, Mm -hmm. uh, Germany, um, Austria. Austria. There's a whole list of them. There's about, there's about seven or nine, somewhere around there. I did those figures when I did a television show a little while ago, but there's about nine other countries.
0: And what's the difference with those countries, they would have a better process for dealing with the issues that lead to criminal behavior? Is that what you probably argue? Well, yeah, and, and that is the interesting question, right? Mm-hmm. What is
4: going on? Like in the Czech Republic, they have concealed carry there. As a, as a, as a citizen, you can concealed carry for the purpose of self-defense there, yet they're, they have a lower farm related mortality rate there. So how does that make any sense? And there's a lot of a lot of, uh, of examples like that. So where it all starts, to be honest with you, George, is for us to have an honest, mature discussion about these issues. And for the politicization and the demonization of licensed gun owners, who are people that have basically agreed to get a criminal record check every 24 hours for the rest of their life, right? That's a condition of licensing. You know, stop the Stop the, the demonization of these people and really figure out what our problems are and be honest about but it. And that's where it all
0: starts. That means you're asking for politicians to make decisions that won't uh, impact anybody for you know, a generation. And that's not helpful for their, for their next election. <laughs> well, certainly dealing with root causes and dealing with
4: violence in our society definitely takes more than four years. Mm-hmm. It's not glamorous work. It's not splashy. You can't just make an announcement. Right. And that's why they've always gone after people with firearms licenses because they know who we are. We're compliant people, all that stuff, right? And this has been going on for decades. And it just, if people really want change, then they have to change the way that they're looking at this problem. Because if, if, if clamping down on licensed gun owners works, then we would have seen the results back in the early 90s when that first round of gun control well, started,
0: right? D- it didn't go well. <laughs> and they oh, kind yeah. of half did it and then they gave up because it was getting so expensive.
4: Well, no, you're talking specifically about the long gun registry, but okay. everything else got implemented. Okay. Licensing, training, uh, background checks every 24 hours, safe storage, transportation regulations, all that stuff has been in place for 30 years.
0: And we didn't see a decline proportionate to the population. Is that what you're saying? Well, what we've seen
4: is the up and down cycle of gang violence. Uh-huh. So up to 2013, it was in decline. 2015 jumps up again. And it's, it's stayed up. I don't you know who knows why, but there's other factors, right? But we see this cyclic this cyclic uh, pattern all the time, and it really depends on whether how much gang activity and criminal activity there is, is in Canada at the time.
0: Are those gangs usually using ghost guns or guns that they've stolen or found or whatever it might be, or, or smuggled across the border, or are they using legitimate uh, guns? I mean, how do we deal with that? I mean, so that's an interesting question too. Very a lot of misconceptions around that. So. It,
4: it's different. It, the proportion between stolen guns and illegally imported guns, like illegally manufactured guns, it is insignificant. It's, it's, it's around the order that uh, straw purchasing, like licensed gun owners buying guns on behalf yeah. of criminals, it almost never happens. So extremely rare. Same thing with, with illegal manufacturing. The majority of crime guns come from illegally smuggled guns and stolen guns. It, it's different across the country, but typically, overall, the accepted numbers are 70% smuggled, 30% stolen. Hmm. When, it, when it comes to stolen guns, the, this is usually the way that uh, government likes to pin it on licensed gun owners. Well, your guns are getting stolen. You're not storing them properly. It's like, no, no, no. That's property crime. And municipal leaders' inability to deal with their property crime problem, instead of dealing with that or taking accountability for that, they're like, oh, well, if you didn't own guns, those guns would never be stolen. Right. So the idea to, get, to make sure the property doesn't get stolen mm-hmm. is for the government to steal it first or to make it illegal to possess is absurd, right? We're trying to we're trying to run a free country
0: here do they when when somebody is when somebody does break into a house and steal guns and maybe they stole the jewelry as well do do the police treat uh, that process differently because I know that I've had my house broken into and the police didn't even bother coming they just like yeah you know welcome to downtown Vancouver uh, you know they just say just fill out your insurance forms uh, but with if I had guns in my house would they show up and go let's look into this is there a difference to the process well they- they may, but certainly they will,
4: will they'll try to foist that crime onto you and make you responsible somehow for it. At least, like, why well, did, you did you have your guns story in you and Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. like, you know, why, why would you store your guns here? Well, because I own them, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm following the law because there's are storage requirements that if you don't follow them, George, you are subject to up to five years in prison.
0: Can you, tell so, if, so can you tell if people who own guns, who live in their homes with their guns, are being targeted for theft? Do you have that kind of data? Do the police have that kind of data? Well, they don't. They, they claim that they did for
4: a while. It was Not really the police, but it was the, uh, the Trudeau government claimed that they had that data for a while, and then it was shown that they didn't actually have it, and they were, they were making some extrapolations. Staff can, will tell you flat out, they do not track that data. They don't have it. Um, well, what about your sense, know. though?
0: You know that you you know a lot of gun owners. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the word on the street with you know your buddies that uh, and all your friends who have guns? Do they feel like hey, I feel like I'm being targeted, or is there more? I mean, I don't you know when I talk to my friends who don't own guns, it's not like we're all talking about being robbed all the time. Are you guys uh, always talking about getting broken into in your homes?
4: Um, no, I think when it when it comes to gun owners and their disposition about this whole thing, um, the worst nightmare for a gun owner is to know that your guns are in the hands of people that aren't licensed to own them. Like that's terrifying for a gun owner, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, certainly for me, I would just, it would be something I would probably almost never get over if I found out that my guns were stolen and they were used to hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. So most gun owners um, exceed the law. They exceed the minimum requirement for storage. Mm -hmm. Um, Some gun owners just do exactly what the law says, but certainly in our community, we're concerned about that kind of stuff.
0: Um, Are we targeted? I don't know. It could happen, I think. It would be good to know, wouldn't it, if we had the data they collected and made that public? Because then we'd be able to know when they bring up things like this, ghost guns and guns being 3D printed, and if there are people being targeted, then that would be a good argument for them to have, say, look, they are being targeted, so therefore we need to have places to put their guns because this is what's happening, and we need to stop it. Wouldn't that be a good argument to create a systemized location for gun storage? Well, then I guess the criminals would only have to go to one
4: place to get thousands of guns, right? <laughs> okay. and, that's, and that's been yeah. really the, the main yeah. argument against central storage right. and making it easy for them.
0: Yeah. All right, Rod, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate uh, your, your thoughts. Anytime. It's my pleasure. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett uh, today, and before the break, we were talking to Kyle Grant, uh, who is the Assistant General Manager of Charlie Don't Surf, and uh, about the issue related to closing the road, uh, making it back to two-way from one way, and then the council in White Rock decided to put it back the way it was, since he argued that there's a lot of issues related to that. Uh, And uh, we had tried to reach the mayor earlier and couldn't get him, but he has now let us know he will be on our show at 2.15 today to respond to Kyle's comments and some of the questions that I have. So tune in at 2.15 if you want to hear from the mayor of White Rock on the decision uh, that they made last night regarding uh, White Rock's uh, uh, marine drive. So that's, I appreciate the mayor getting back to us. Uh, It's always good when a politician is responsive. So a year and a half ago, uh, so many of us moved uh, our, out of our uh, offices into our homes. Uh, we never thought it would be. We'd be in our homes for so long. In fact, I look in this office here uh, at, uh, at CKNW and still staff are working mostly from home. I'm one of the few people here who is working in the studio. Uh, most of the hosts are working from home uh, and most of the staff are still at home. But, uh, you know, we all learned about the technology and how to, you know, that whole technology speed up that we got because of it, because of the COVID. And, and, and we actually learned how to use things like, you know, Zoom uh, and to do video calls. But as we get closer to normal, some businesses are asking staff, even sometimes I think begging them, uh, to head back to the office and and work from there. Jock Finlayson is the Senior Policy Advisor for the Business Council of British Columbia. The council represents large large and small business companies and affiliated industry associations that together account for approximately one quarter of all jobs in this province. And uh, Jock joins me now. Hi, Jock. Hi, how are you? Good. So, it's been a it quite, been quite a year as you know. Uh, how impressed are you uh at how business has adapted to, you know, in dealing with COVID over the last year?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's been an extraordinary experience for for all of us. You know the old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, well, you yeah. might modify it and say what doesn't kill you makes you more innovative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what we've seen in spades uh, across uh, a lot of industries in the country and, for that matter, in many other nations as well, Um, and individuals, too. So people have adapted to uh, what, you know, two years ago was, you know, probably unimaginable, Mm -hmm. Um, having large swaths of the economy closed down by government edict um, and having, you know, 40 or 50 percent of all work being done in the economy done remotely from the work site. I mean, that was, you know... Again, something I don't think people even remotely contemplated. Yet, you know, we made it work. Yeah. Uh, the economy has actually come roaring back fairly, fairly briskly. Um, and here in BC, we're actually back to the same. We're actually above the level of employment that we recorded shortly before. Amazing. So, the I, pandemic hit. It's amazing.
0: And I, one of the things that was so impressive, I think, was the <laughs> supply chain. I think there was besides the toilet paper wars that we had early on. It, it was amazing how the fears that we might have had related to the interruption of our supply chain of our goods being distributed—nothing happened. It was the pandemic didn't seem to have any impact really on on mass distribution of our goods. And I think was that surprising to you?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't state it quite as boldly well, as you do, George. I mean, there were shortages. The, sure. the, we're seeing now. Uh, you know, there there are limits on the availability of semiconductors, for example, yeah. which is having a lot of downstream impacts on. On, on manufacturing mm-hmm. everything from vehicles through to computers so i, I wouldn 't what what was extraordinary about the impact of the pandemic was the way it hit the service economy. Mm-hmm. It actually didn 't have the same impact on what we uh, economists would call the goods producing industries like manufacturing and resources mm-hmm. and utilities and even construction. Most of that kept op- kept operating in b c virtually all of it kept operating. But it was the consumer-facing service industries, both public and private, that really went through the ringer. Um, And we see that uh, in the data. We see that in what's happened in the job market. And we see it in what's happening with the whole work-from-home phenomenon as well.
0: As we head back to normal, uh, a few short months ago, people were saying, "Yeah, they would like to work from home forever." And employers are, you know, kind of open to it. And some of the data that we're seeing shows that, oh, yeah, sure, you know, that sounds okay. But now we have some groups uh, who are saying, "Yeah, no, 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 I think it might be better to get back to the office." You know, what are your thoughts on getting people back into those yeah. offices?
2: Well, we're tracking it pretty closely and talking to a lot of our, our companies because mm-hmm. we're interested in, uh, in in how they're responding and. It's a pretty mixed picture, to be candid. I mean, if you look uh, sort of as a continuum across different kinds of, of industries, uh, the investment banks, for example, in Toronto, and New York, have basically mandated that they want full return to work by September. Um, and indeed, the the CEOs of some of the biggest U.S. investment banks have have been public, quite public about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we've got some of the biggest technology companies in the world, like uh, you know Amazon and Facebook and Google and Shopify and others, that are saying no, they're actually going to allow their people to and, and even encourage most of their employees to work remotely. So it's huh. it's going to play out, I think, in a very uh, sort of heterogeneous way across industries and even companies. It'll depend on you know the preferences of the employees. The actions of, of management. If you decide to downsize your footprint, your office footprint, for example, which I think some companies are going mm-hmm. to do, uh, by definition, you're going to have more of your people working off-site if you end up cutting your office space by 30 or 40 or 50 percent. Yeah. Uh, and I am seeing some of that, but I'm also seeing companies, big companies that are, that are re-signing leases yeah. for the office space they had before COVID hit. So again, it's a it, 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 it's very mixed. Uh, but I do think we can say two things. One, the number of people working from home is going to diminish mm-hmm. compared to what we experienced during the peak of the pandemic and even today. Um, so that's, that's point one. And, but point two is the new equilibrium is not going to look like where we were in 2019. In other words, there's going to be substantially more people working at least part time, if not full time remote from the work site. And the real issue is what is that magnitude? And the answer is we don't know yet.
0: Uh, The other thing that happened and that kind of feeds into that is that people spent a lot of time thinking about their jobs when they were working from home. And and, uh, we're hearing a lot of stories about uh, people leaving their companies they were with going, you know what? It's not right for me anymore. Are you seeing a lot of that where there's people going, you know what? I'm out. And and, and especially on the retirement side going, you know, I'm done. Um, and how is that
2: impacting? Yeah, that's, uh, somebody was just asking me that question in my own shop this morning. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of anecdotes around it. We don't have, I'm a data person. Yeah, so but. I like to see, you know, uh, you know, reliable data based on surveys or administrative data or whatever. We don't have that yet. Um, but a couple of points that I think shed light on on the important uh, question you've posed is as people have gained experience with a different way of working, mm-hmm. not having to commute, for example, which is a huge deal in these big mm-hmm. metro areas like Vancouver and and greater Toronto, um, I think that is driving you know people to decide they want they want to continue to work from home or they want a more flexible lifestyle, they don't want to commute any longer and therefore they're going to look for new jobs. Closer to home or you know become self employed or, or or for that matter move out of move out of these kind of overpriced big cities, um, so I think we are seeing some of that, and i 'll be looking forward to you know kind of the data that shed light on it. second point is retirement absolutely we 're hearing anecdotal evidence that people who were close to retirement age or approaching retirement in two thousand and twenty uh, have decided uh, after this kind of great shock of covid uh, you know, to 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 move their plans forward, or uh, move their move their you know move move more quickly into retirement. Life is short. There's other things people want to do. The other point I would make is that very surprisingly, uh, household net worth in Canada. So this is assets minus li- liabilities has shot up by over 15% since COVID hit. And believe me, that was not expected hmm. <laughs> a year or, or 13 or 14 or 15. People weren't ago. spending money. They were just yeah, saving and so their real estate prices went up. So, yeah, so housing
0: yeah.
2: is one. Stock market at all-time highs, number two. Yeah. A lot of private business assets have gone up in value. And saving savings rates have gone up. So the combination of all those things has put... A lot of people approaching retirement actually in a stronger financial position than they were 18 months ago, and that's probably accelerating the decisions to leave the workforce uh, on the part of some folks. Obviously, an
0: evolving workforce requires uh, replacement, and uh, we had a very robust immigration policies prior to the pandemic. Uh, You know, with 300 to 400,000 people coming into the country every year, uh, is that what we still need uh, or more? Do we need even higher numbers to to keep up with the needs that the businesses have across this country?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not personally a proponent of driving up immigration numbers further, but leave that aside. The current federal government has been very clear uh, and very public that they intend to ramp up immigration from... The sort of 300 and 350 thousand a year range where we were, you know, before 2020, and 2020 was of course a, a lost year because yeah. the borders were closed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they intend to move it up, uh, starting this year to 400 thousand mm-hmm. plus going forward, and that's just permanent immigrants. There's also non-permanent uh, people who come to Canada either as, as so-called temporary foreign workers or mm-hmm. international students. And that's another, you know, couple hundred thousand a year. So it's a big number. Uh, and I think we're going to continue down that track. It's very clear that uh, the federal government uh, uh, has embraced that as an objective. So we're going to see a return to high and I think even higher levels of immigration than we had prior to 2020. That's that's my forecast.
0: All right, Jock, thanks for joining me today.
2: All right, thanks for the opportunity.
0: George Afflegan for Jill Bennett this week. And I uh, hope you're enjoying the show today and the sun outside. So, blasting off, the space race continues to get juicy as reports suggest. Elon Musk bought tickets to Richard Branson's space flight ten years ago. Why are billionaires so fascinated with this stuff? Is space really that, uh, really the final frontier? Joining me now is Michael Unger, program coordinator at HR McMillan Space Center. Hi, Michael. Hi, George. How are you? Good. The space center, you know, celebrates and teaches us about space. Um, how important is was Richard Branson's, you know, trip into space this week for you guys?
5: Well, of course, it was the first, you know, commercial. It wasn't actually the, the first commercial space flight um, because he, was, he owned his own company. But it was sort of like the first sort of significant um, step in that direction of what we might call, quote unquote, space tourism. Um, mm-hmm. And really, this is, you know, opening up a new door and a new window into the average person to be able to perhaps buy a ticket to go up uh, into space, a place that uh, before had been reserved for people that worked for NASA um, that uh, went to the International Space Station and, of course, back in the 60s and 70s, went to the moon. Um, so now this is a new era. Of course, it is a very exclusive um, place yeah. right now, but the hope is that maybe at some point in the future um, you might see an average person uh, may be able to buy a ticket
0: to go and have a orbit around the Earth. Kind of like the early days of the airline industry. You know, Howard Hughes and that kind of stuff, Pan Am. And So what were you guys doing? Did you... Could you even watch it from... The, The space center, or what? What was the? What were you guys doing for this season?
6: Well, you know, it's
5: like commercial space flight. Of course, um, is really all about uh, looking back on our planet. It wasn't really um, a big event that we did. Of course, I was uh, I was watching it. I was Mm -hmm. actually on CBC News, um, um, watching it live. It was certainly a spectacle. You know, what I really found watching it, um, Richard Branson, of course, is a a really good business business mind, and he knew that he is looking to buy into this market and, and trying to track. People to buy tickets uh, for his airline, especially early on, to drum up yeah. that interest. So the the show that they put on was uh, was very different than say like your average NASA launch, which is usually you know pretty cut yeah. and dry. The yeah. astronauts are pretty uh, button up kind of thing. Uh, but you know having Stephen Colbert have be the host oh and, then and then have voice over uh,
0: the person doing the actual launch and the the, the woman you know there the conversation. It was just so uh, produced. It really was and that's, and that 's really
5: the difference between um, the, the world that we live in right now, because you have the governments like NASA and Canadian Space Agency, of course, uh, many governments around the world that are going up into space that are doing you know research they 're doing um, different work, um, but then you also have the private space companies that are supporting uh, the government agencies, or in this case they have like their own sort of like side business, and of course this all fuels all of it because it fuels innovation, mm-hmm. and hopefully that will trickle down you know. Um, say, for instance, in our country, yeah. um, our government has has put a lot of effort into um, the innovation sector, the artificial intelligence uh, sector, that is going to be go directly to the Lunar Gateway project, which is going to be the. Sequel, if you will, to the international Space Station, so once the space station um, uh, sort of like goes away, then the uh, the orbiter around the moon will be the new place that uh, astronauts will go to so canada 's put a lot of investment into that, and hopefully that'll fuel jobs that'll sort of like fuel our economy um, and hopefully trickle down uh, to the rest of the so, society
0: so even though this seems like completely an arrogant self serving Billionaire paradise situation, it does have benefits to the science.
5: Well, well, absolutely. Because the one thing that I notice in the private sector, and what SpaceX has actually done really well, is that because they're not beholden to the bureaucracy of governments, mm-hmm. they actually uh, are very efficient in getting things done and being able to be like, okay, we're going to build a, a brand new rocket um, that's going to get us uh, into space and orbit around the Earth. And you know, Richard Branson completely, you know, um, used well he. he used technology that had been built upon before by NASA, but uh, a very unique that he used all of his own resources and got it done in a much more efficient time. And all the people that perhaps work for Richard Branson will, you know, may cross over and start working in other industries. Um, and now we all of a sudden, as a planet, you know, we now become a space-faring society. And that has now opened us up to uh, really what we call the future. We've only, you know, back in the 1950s, we sort of envisioned this 2001 Space Odyssey future, um, now we can sort of see that reality actually getting a little closer.
0: What is it about you know the dinosaurs in space? I mean, there seems like people want to go back to look at dinosaurs or go into <laughs> space. I mean, there's there, what is this fascination? You're surrounded by kids all the time, and you know mm-hmm. with that uh, space center. What is it with these fascination? With these, those two things seem to be they're completely opposite, but yet something about them that people this mystery, I guess it is.
5: Yeah, it's the it's the curiosity of um of, of the unknown, of what we don't know. I mean, well dinosaurs for one are these mythical creatures that it's hard for us to fathom. They're just the size of them and mm-hmm. they're not around anymore. All we see is the bones. So it's a bit of a mystery of like trying to envision them roaming around the planet being the dominant species. We- Space. It's really the future. It's really look up at the stars and you see the, the vast, you know, size of the universe. It's harder for our brains to comprehend just how big it is. And all you need to do is look up at night and see mm-hmm. a few of those stars and start and start to wonder. And you know, over the, the years, especially the last hundred years, you know, our, our understanding of the universe has taken huge leaps. And but every time that we make new understandings and of how the universe works we realize there's a lot more that we don't understand. So it's like constantly fueling sort of this driving question of where we are in the universe and and how humans fit into that. It's sort of helping our brains and us as humanities kind of like open up to the big picture of of, uh, where we are and what we're doing here.
0: Real quick, the, the the Space Center is uh, open now. What's uh, just a quick promo for the Space Center down there?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like uh, we finally, with the new regulations, have been able to open up our planetarium. Uh, our theaters are sort of like our, our, our main spaces. So now you can book a ticket. You can come see a show. We've also got our observatory for the summer that we've opened up. And because we've got some good weather, we're going to be doing some solar observing. Fantastic. So you book a ticket, see a planetarium show, and you'll be able to see the, the sun through our special solar filter.
0: Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the call. Thanks, George. Thank george Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck, or you can email me, george at com. Coming up in this uh, half hour, we'll be t- speaking to the mayor of White Rock about the surprise decision to not continue with a one-way road in on Marine Drive, which came as a surprise of the businesses uh, in White Rock. And so he'll be joining me in... Uh, 10 minutes or so but first if you if you're planning on hitting the road with the kids and you'd rather not keep their heads have their kids heads down playing whatever device they happen to have or that you can afford what do you do music games look out the window get a map joining me now is casey shell producer on the jeff o'neill show and c fox which is just down the hall here and a road trip expert hey casey hey how's it going george good so punch buggy pro or con what ha- what about i spy paniddle what we got here
6: Oh, you know what? I was just going to hit you with the classic iSpy. That's uh, pretty much as, as good as I got. You know, my suggestion would have been to, you know, they have iPads now, don't they?
0: <laughs> that's right. They can, they can use, that's right. I, you know, the yeah. thing is, I, I put the Padiddle in there because I threw that out in the gang here and they were like, what the heck is Padiddle? Do you know what Padiddle
6: is? I don't, actually. What
0: it, is that? And I, I thought, is this a Langley thing? Because, you know, growing up in the valley, it's, uh, maybe, I don't know. But, you know, we used to, when you'd see one car with one headlight, you scream, Padiddle. And generally, you'd punch the person. You know, it's kind of like a combination of punch buggy and, uh, you know, uh, whatever. And so you, it's a way to beat on your friends, generally, in my experience. But uh, you see a one-headlight car coming towards you, you get a point, basically, if you see it first. And you scream, peddle. So that's peddle. Um, These
6: car games always seem to lead to violence, which is
0: strange. <laughs> Dude, I know. i got three kids. It gets the, that back. It <laughs> uh, got pretty wild and crazy when I when they, when they were all younger, for sure. So, so what are your thoughts? You actually, you're you're a seasoned, experienced road tripper. In fact, I heard a rumor that you had a camper van and uh, and you were like a mobile for like long stretches. <laughs> what is this rumor I hear?
6: Yeah. So sometimes I refer to my time spent in a van as my quarter life crisis, uh, just because it sounds funny. But truly, it was <laughs> um, a, a great time in my life. Um, I, you know, I'd wanted a van ever since I was little, could probably blame that on watching a lot of Scooby-Doo, but um, I grew up just being really fascinated by this alternate lifestyle, and I just thought, you know, I should probably try it out. I was, uh, at the time, I think particularly very disenchanted with modern life and how everything's on social media, things were going too fast, Mm -hmm. it was really hard living in the city, so I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to leave all of this behind, literally, and just take off. And that's kind of what I did. So <laughs> Wow. So
0: you've got the experience yeah. of being on the road. Were you by yourself most of the time, or...? I was, yeah. So that's yeah. a bit harder to play games when you're on the road, when you're by yourself. But uh, staying awake is a lot is of talking key. to myself,
6: George.
0: <laughs> and music, of course, you know, that would yes. be an important part of that. So that's the thing with traveling on the road with the family. And when I was a kid, there was only one album we could all agree on in the car, and that was Grease, the the soundtrack. My parents were fine with it. We were fine with it. So we learned every word to that song. You know, in our my with my kids, ABBA seems to be. You know, everybody seems to be happy with ABBA, and so that's a continued road trip song. What are some of the road music that you think's uh, you know, works on generational capacity.
6: Oh man! Um, well, I have everything in my library from Britney Spears to Motorhead. So <laughs> there's, uh, I think variety is key. Yeah um, keep it keep it interesting for sure.
0: <laughs> Motorhead. I don't know, but that's uh, apropos, I guess, for the you know the title, but the, the band, but maybe uh,
6: not appropriate for kids. <laughs> but you I know. Think so. <laughs>
0: So what about some of the games? What are some of the games you recommend for people? And I, we want to recommend that people call us in, to at 331 with their ideas and leave a message for us, 604 331 But what do you think? What are some of the games that you can recommend?
6: Um, yeah, besides that, you know, good old I Spy. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually play a game with, um, you know, remember that scene in Fight Club where, you know, they're up on the plane and, uh, the, you know, the main characters like, you know, traveling is very funny because you have these single-serving friends. Mm -hmm. And I found that very true on the road. You know, you'd meet people and you will never see them again. So what I like to do on the road was um, play a name game where I just give people names. I'm just like, oh, well, that guy looks like a Todd. I'm going to call him Todd. Ah. And that, that person looks like Jill. I'm going to call her Jill.
0: So Interesting. So <laughs> that's
6: the, you know, the extent of my game knowledge there. <laughs>
0: we have a, I have a version that I made up that's kind of like that, but it's a celebrity version of that. So you see a person and you say, that person looks like this celebrity and you get a certain number of points. And so if you, it's like 1.4, and, and there has to be one other person in your group that agrees with you that that person looks like that person. And But you get 10 points if the person... Is is actually a celebrity and so one time I was in I can, we were in the city and we saw Ryan uh, R- Ryan R- R- Rob Reiner Rob Reiner and his entire family and so wow. I got 10 my kids were like, I said oh my god there's Rob Reiner my kids are like it's not, come on that's just a exactly. guy with a beard and yeah. I said no it's Rob Reiner it's Rob Reiner and it was so I got 10 points so I kicked on. I kicked butt on that one one
6: but, other uh, game that I did just think of was if you do have a little bit of time to prepare especially if you do have kids and you know where you're going yeah um is to plot out a, uh, what I like to call road trip bingo. Mm-hmm. So if you know that you're, let's say, heading across BC towards the Okanagan and you know you're going to take the nest Pass, well, you know, I'd put a little symbol of the Crowsness Pass sign and that'd be bingo. And, you know, that way the kids are looking out the window, they're looking around at everything that they can see, and um, maybe they're not punching each other, playing punch <laughs> buggy instead. So
0: <laughs> I like it. The map is kind of a good idea. Like I, I mentioned that in earlier, but we bought a map for the summer to sort of map, literally map out our trip because you, you 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 look on your phone or on your iPad it's not the it's not the same thing. And we found a map that actually was uh, laminated, so we could use you know we could really play around with it and draw different routes and plan a sort of a road trip that we'll go on and we'll kind of divide it up. And we even thought, well, oh, we'll put it on the wall and we'll do a little put a little things in it after the trip to show where we went for this, so we can sort of have this proud moment at the end mm-hmm. of the summer and go look what we did. By the way, Punch Bug, I we switched that a couple of years ago to punch tesla because it's way easier uh, now <laughs> to when you see a tesla and they punch each other i guess uh, that
6: game definitely needs to be updated to 2021 roads.
0: So. yeah it's tough it's tough in those games like that i spy though that's that one is um when you're part and my kid one of my youngest wants to play that all the time and it's it's uh it's always it goes on forever i find
6: <laughs> yeah it could never end it has endless possibilities
0: <laughs> so when are you uh, what road trips do you in the summer
6: um this summer I will definitely be going um at least as far as the East Kootenay. Um okay. that's okay. one of the places that I I really enjoy. There's so much um British Columbia in general is, you know, anywhere Pretty you go nice. is is you can't really lose. Um, I've spent a lot of time in and around the Okanagan area, Okanagan Falls, wine country. Um really we're so lucky to be here and even when i was living in the van and i wasn't found you know all up and down the west coast from los angeles to vancouver mm-hmm. i would spend a lot of my time in british columbia just because it's so gorgeous mm-hmm. and um you know we have world-class um mountains lakes yeah everything you could want so so you're yeah, getting, you're getting in your car you're gonna
0: be it. heading to the Kootenays. what's the first song you're going to put on there on, as you head out the head of the driveway or the parking lot
6: Ooh, Mr. Blue Sky by ELO. Oh, probably.
0: interesting. That's a poppy yeah, that's kind of thing. Yeah, that's
6: a good thing. way to kick off a road trip. Also, maybe Don't Fear the Reaper or something like that. Uh, Take it like, real back. You got,
0: you got him <laughs> from one end to the other there. That's nice. All right, mm-hmm. Casey, thanks very much for joining me. I really appreciate that.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me on, George.